Good to see everybody here this morning. I hope, uh, like I said, I, I hope Daylight Savings Time treated you well. Like part of me, to be honest, I, I'm a hunter and a fisherman, and so I, I kind of wish they'd do away with it. Um, but this morning was nice. Like that, that was good to be able to sleep. Uh, good to see everybody. Uh, we are back in the book of 1 John this morning. Uh, we're going to be here through the end of the month, and then we'll take a little break for Advent, and then we'll, we'll jump back in in January to wrap that up. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to chapter 1 of 1 John. If you weren't here last week, um, we just kind of kicked off with John's introduction of sorts as to who he was, why he was speaking, and kind of to a degree, like why he could be trusted. Um, at this point, it's likely that John was probably the oldest living follower of Jesus, or at least the person that was living that had been following Jesus the longest. This was in the, the late, you know, the mid to late 90s um, during that first century. And so he had been following Jesus for quite a while. And most of the other, as a matter of fact, uh, the other 11 original capital D disciples at this point were likely dead, and he was left, living in Ephesus. And so this particular book, or this letter, was kind of a circular letter written to uh, the churches at Ephesus and the surrounding cities, those cities that we see mentioned in the early parts of the book of Revelation. And again, it's, it's a very different letter. Like, it's unique. Like, I, I love looking and, and seeing how uh, pastoral epistles, they, they vary from, from one to another, but but this, this letter from John, it does echo some ideas that we would see from the Gospel of John, same writer. Um, but also, like, I think it, it bears mentioning that for us, like, to sit and to listen almost like they would have. Like, this is an, an elder follower of Jesus. And by elder, I mean elder in every sense of the word. Uh, from 75 to maybe in, even in his 90s, we don't exactly know, but, but he was aged. He was up there, and he had had a lot of time in the saddle with Jesus. And, and he, was, he was still going, and he was still there. And so his words had great, more than just gravitas, they had great relational weight. Because the people at Ephesus, they had been with John uh, pretty much since before the fall of Jerusalem, most likely, when the Jews had to scatter because life was getting very, very increasingly dangerous for them. And he had taken up residence in Ephesus along with Timothy. We had him there. Paul made his way through there at a time. But at this point, John was still there. And so at this stage, like we, we talked about last week, we don't know the specificity of the issues that were plaguing the people of this particular time, but we do know, as we read the rest of this book, that there were people leaving the church. They were walking away, and it's likely that they were being led away. Could have been early forms of Gnosticism uh, or some other things like that, but we don't really know. But what we do know is John takes this opportunity not to confront lies and mistruth, but what he does is he just wants to reiterate and solidify the truth that they should have heard from the beginning. And that's the reason it's important that he started the letter by like, hey, um, I was there. Like, I saw him, I touched him, I walked with him. That's whom I speak of. Like, that's the place that I'm coming from. And he even gives the desire of his heart. He's like, look, I, I want you to have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with God, and, and that's what I want you to have. And he said, we want, you know, make my joy complete. Or in, otherwise, in other words, like, I want to know that you know with the same solidarity, with the same, with the same uh, just very focused mind, the same things that I know about Christ and the gospel. I want you to know those, but I want to know that you know. And so, like, from a pastoral heart, like I, I said last week, like, uh, I, I didn't say this, but I'm privileged to get to do this as a job. My son asked me this week, he was like, do you love your job? I'm like, I love my job. Like, it's the greatest job ever. And, and I do, I love it. Um, but, like, my heart is this, that, that I want us, the people of Origins, like, I want you to know what I know. Like, I want you to believe what I believe, and I want you to believe it with the conviction in which I believe it. It doesn't mean that there are days in which it's hard for me or those, don't things, those things come, but like, 
The same words of John, and I'm not taking on his old man status because I'm, I'm not there yet, uh, 44 this coming week, which still blows my mind, but that makes me older than most of you, which I, I understand, but that's okay. You'll get there. Um, but like from, from my pastoral heart to your, your place where you are as family and people of this church, like I want you to know what I know. I want you to be convicted of what I'm convicted of. I want you to, to believe what I believe. And I don't want it just so that, so that we can be unified in thought and belief. No, I want it so that you can be confident in the grace that Jesus has displayed through the cross. So that you can live that out. So that you have a lifetime of what's left to follow, pursue, display, and magnify the glory of God. Like, I want you to know that. And so today, we're going to start in verse 5, after John is kind of reiterating what I said in verse 4, when we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We're going to read verses 5 through 10 um, in chapter 1. Let me pray, and then we'll go. God, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, for uh, this, this disciple that we have in John, the way that he walked with you, talked with you, knew you, followed you. Um, God, sometimes the way that you pulled him away from the rest just to specifically invest in him through Jesus. Um, God, thank you for the investment you made in him. Thank you for the preservation of his life. He should have been dead multiple times already, but you chose and saw fit to keep him going, to grow him to this place so that he could continue to shepherd, guide, and love your people, your church. Father, as we look at your word today, Father, I pray that it would not be an indictment upon our belief, but instead, God, it would be conviction and solidification of what we know to be true. Um, God, I pray for encouragement to come through this. But God, if there is one that hears today and, and they can say with certainty that they don't know the things that John is speaking of, Father, I pray that through your Spirit you would convict them, you would draw them to yourself, and Father, they would experience eternal life by ref refusing to follow after the course of this world and giving themselves over to you through your Spirit. God, I thank you for the hope that rests in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So chapter 1, verse 5, let's read through uh, six verses and then we'll... We'll kind of uh, talk about these a bit. So it says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Kind of what we, we wrapped up with last week, John, in this book, this kind of circular letter that we're going to read, uh, he pitches out some things that I, that I call indicators. And I, I talked about from a fly fishing perspective, I, I fish with things called indicators when I fly fish, and it's, it's not a bobber, don't insult me, it's an, it's an indicator, it, it costs more and it's smaller and it's far more sophisticated, but either way, that indicator is it drifts down the stream, your fly is well below it, and the indicator tells you on the surface what is going on below. So it indicates what's happening. If a trout takes your fly, that, that indicator does some funny stuff. You raise your rod tip, you tighten your line, you... Don't hurt the beautiful trout, and then you throw him back, release him gracefully back into the wild to catch him again next year when he's grown a few inches and a few more ounces. But either way, that's me, not you, not putting that on you, Ricky Bobby. But either way, we talked about these are indicators, and John, through this book, is going to toss out several of these kind of indicators in the form of, of if-then statements. 
And, and that's what he's doing in this particular text. And uh, these are vital for us to understand before we continue on about a chapter and a half later because things can get rather confusing, especially for those of us who are following Jesus when we hear some comments about sin. So what we hear today is vital in, the, in these forms of if-then statements. And so in the very beginning, he starts out in verse 5. He says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John is from this very inception beginning with a metaphor of light and dark, two things that are completely different from each other and cannot exist simultaneously. Light and dark. If something is light, there is no darkness. If something is dark, there is no light. And John is using that metaphor, not an uncommon metaphor to use for good and evil or anything like that. But in this case, he's using it as a descriptor of the separate nature, the holiness, uh, the moral fixtures of God himself. Because he's saying that, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He's setting this up as kind of a springboard for the way that we're going to enter in. And so we can do one of two things with this light and dark thing. Number one, we can read so much into it that we miss the point. Or number two, we can just chalk it up to a simple metaphor. And it's neither. Like John's being intentional with the words that he's using because he wants us to understand that they are, they are mutually exclusive. They cannot exist simultaneously. One represents God, one represents the absence of God. Uh, many religious writers of this time, whether they were uh, following or followers of God or not, they would use the same metaphor. But in this particular place, John, just like in his gospel, uh, he's using this light and dark metaphor. In the gospel of John, we have about 23 times in which he uses these, these same or similar ideas. And we're going to throw up a few of those really quickly um, and just read a few of these off. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, speaking of Jesus. Continuing on, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then the last, he says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So this was not a new metaphor. As a matter of fact, John was, was very comfortable with it. Like I said, about 23 times over the course of 16 verses in the Gospel of John, he used this same imagery. And now he's going to enter, you know, introduce this idea again in this circular letter to these churches, but he's going to do it to preface some of these indicators, these if-then statements. Because remember, the context of what we're looking at is this church, or these churches, so to speak, most likely house churches in these particular cities, um, they've been following Jesus for a while. We don't know how long. Uh, but we know that we're looking at, you know, 60, 70 years after the ascension of Christ, the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection, and his ascension. And so there's been time for bad ideas and bad theology and bad thought patterns to work their way in and weave their way into uh, what would be orthodoxy at this time or right belief and right thought. And people are being led away. They are walking away. And so what John wants to do with this letter, one of the main functions of this, he's like, again, like, I want to, to toss out some ideas that we've heard from the beginning. I was there from the beginning. I heard them from the mouth of the Logos, the Word Himself, Jesus, God with skin on. I heard them. I want to convey them to you so that you won't have doubt about who this is that we're following and if you're truly with Him. The word that he used in the early parts, like we talked about last week, was this quantania idea, this, this fellowship idea. He said, I want you to have fellowship with us, and then I want you to know that our fellowship or our union, our communion, is actually with God the Father himself. I want you to have that. And so he's going to toss out these conditional statements uh, so that they can know for sure who they belong to. 
And there may be a small possibility that they can know for sure who they don't belong to, but they can. And so for us today, a couple things like, um, again, like I prayed, like I, I don't want this to be an indictment upon your belief. Like, I don't think that John wrote this because, again, he didn't um, specifically verbatim address the false theology, the bad ideas, the, uh, the, the poor religion that was being taught and potentially leading people astray. What he did is he just issued truth. And so truth bolsters, truth shores up, truth uh, gives us assertions of what we may believe. And so for you, like, if you are fighting through this life, if you are wading through the muck and the mud of this world, claiming to believe in Jesus, but there are some days that you doubt and you just don't know if it's valid or true, this is for us. Like, this is for us. It's important that we can know who we follow, why we follow him, and what is the status of our following to a degree. But maybe you're sitting just a few steps outside of that to where you can say, I I don't know who this Jesus is. I've heard stories. I've seen flannel lithographs as a kid in VBS. Those are those, you know, those sticky boards that we had as kids. Maybe that's Baptist world. I don't know if other you know, denominations had those, but I did. Maybe you've seen that, but maybe you're just kind of questioning, but do I, like, do I know him the way my friends know him, the way these people that I hang around with know him, the way that this short, bald man that looks you know, kind of like a hobbit who's talking to me, the way that he claims to know him? Like, do I? And so through these very same if-then conditional statements, like my hope, my prayer, and this is what I prayed this morning, like if you're sitting here and you don't know Christ, at the end of this, I would love for you to text me, call me, email me, do whatever. I'll meet you today, even if you're in the far-off land of Traveler's Rest or that other land that's seven miles away but 45 minutes away called Five Forks. Like I'll meet you, um, and I would love to just hear you and hear your questions. I know that any of our elders and our, and our wives, um, our community group leaders, they would love to do the same thing. So if at the end of this, you're just like, uh, no, I, I'm just convinced more than ever I don't know Christ, but I would like to ask more questions, please, today, like ask those questions. Ask those questions. But for the rest of us, and you too, just here's where we're going to go. So he pitches out this idea of, of light and dark, and, and again, the context is to know or not know. And so his very first conditional statement we see provided in verse 6, and he says, If we say we have fellowship, union, communion with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice truth. So he pitched out the idea that God is light. There is no darkness in him. He is this, not that. And then he says, he says look, like if we claim uh, to have fellowship with him or we are with him, but we are walking in darkness, nope, not true. Not true. Because God is light. In him there is no darkness, so we can't simultaneously, again, they're mutually exclusive, we can't simultaneously walk in darkness and know God at the same time. We can't do it. And I know there's a question swirling in your head right now. We're going to get to it in just a second. But for, the, for right now, the if-then statement is, if we say we know him but we walk in darkness, then we do not know him. No matter what we say, if we're walking in darkness, is that, if that is where we live, that is where we dwell, that is what categorizes the way we make choices, that is what categorizes the things that we value, that is what categorizes the way that we believe, our belief system. If we are in that darkness, yet we say that we know God, we lie. We do not know him. Pretty, pretty black and white. Our light and dark. It's right there. We'll, we'll get to the question. Maybe it's swirling in your brain. Maybe it's not. I'm going to see if I can read your minds in just a second. I'm not like David Blaine or anything, but... So verse 7, he tosses out another conditional statement. He says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship, quantonia, with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
So the first is like, if we say we know him, but we walk in darkness, we don't know him. Truth is not in us. And then the other is, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, because he is that light, then we have fellowship with one another, the same fellowship that John was talking about earlier. I want you to have fellowship with me, and our fellowship is that with God. Um, He says, then we have fellowship with him, and he has washed us, cleansed us, fixed us, made us right, reconciled us, all of those big theological words. He has done that if we are in the light, because he is in the light. So two ideas. Either we're in darkness or we're in light. If we're in the darkness, we don't know God. If we're in the light, it points to proof that we do. We can make this super complicated, and we can stretch this metaphor as far as we want, but we don't need to. Like, that wasn't John's intent. Again, we can overcomplicate it, or we can chalk it up to just a metaphor. But, but here's the reality, because here's the question. The question is, well, what, what is light? What is light? And I think to give a very sterile definition of what is light, uh, God is being light, it's, it's kind of definitively an ethical and moral goodness that we would call holiness in God. Okay, that's, that's very sterile. There's no relational attachment there. If we go a little less sterile, to, to walk in the light, to live in the light, that Hebrew idea to walk in the light would be to live constantly, consistently from a pursuit standpoint. It would be to allow God's revealed will to motivate and guide my actions and decisions. Again, a little less sterile, a little more intentional. Let me read it again. It would be to allow God's revealed will, which we find through Scripture, we find through His Spirit, we find through His people, Allow God's revealed will to motivate and guide my actions and decisions to walk in the light. Here's how we would put it in a little less sterile, a little more relational context in words that we would normally use. To walk in the light means that we follow Jesus. We set our pattern of thought, our pattern of love, our pattern of hope, our pattern of all of those things after the life, the words, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We do our best to seek, pursue, and follow him. That's walking in the light. And here's where it gets tricky. Anything outside of that is not light. It's also called darkness. Because they're, again, they're mutually exclusive. We're not talking about dusk and dawn here. We're talking about light or dark, one or the other. It is that knowable. It is that knowable. And I know that's hard. Because we live in a culture and in a time in which it says we can't really know anything definitively. You can't even really know for sure that you're standing right here. You could be in the matrix right now. It's all a lie. It's all a facade. You could learn kung fu just by downloading something into your brain. That was a great movie, the first one. Those other, mess with, those other ones mess with my brain. But you could be living in that right now. I want to assure you, God is knowable. God is knowable. God is relatable. God is reachable, not because of my effort, but because of the effort of Jesus. One thing that when I read the book of 1 John, like I think I want to read it as a book of do's and don'ts, but what I have to do is I have to read it as a book of done's. As a book of what God has already done through the life, the words, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And because of that, I get to know and I get to do. And it's just as knowable, just as perceivable as light and darkness the metaphor that John's tossing out. One cannot exist within the other. Are you struggling with that? Like, do you sit here and do you hear me say it and then you're like, yeah, I don't know. 
I don't know, Joe. My name's not Joe, but thank you for asking the question. I just, I don't know. God is knowable. So continuing on in verse 8, this is where we get, we get tripped up because if we're like, okay, well, I, I think I'm in the light. Um, I, don't, I don't think I'm in the darkness because um, I, I got struggles. Verse 8, here's another if-then statement. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And you say, well, wait a second. Now it gets confusing because you've told me there's light and there's darkness they can't exist simultaneously. You're right. But then this verse says if, if we say that we haven't sinned, then we're lying. Exactly right. Exactly right. The rub of this book is going to come in chapter 3 because there's, there's some postulation and some ideas that makes it sound like once we choose to follow Jesus, sin is gone. Sin's gone. And so if sin is still in my life, then I must not know Jesus. John sets us off very early and makes sure that we understand that when we're thinking of light and when we're thinking of dark, we also have to understand that God knows all. He knows all. And he knows that sanctification is what we would call progressive. Not progressive from a, a, an ideological standpoint, but it's something that's going to be progressing as we live and follow Jesus. And so therefore... It's possible to walk in the light, and this is not an excuse, and this is not to make us feel good, this is not rescuing, but there's the possibility that we walk in the light and sin still plagues us. We can simultaneously walk in light and still be plagued by sin. Paul's words, Paul's words are like, why can't I do the things that I want to do, and why is it that I do the things I don't want to do? Like that battle, that tug of war, the spirit that is inside of me as a seal of my salvation, and then the flesh that it dwells in, they're going to be at odds. And again, this is not an excuse, and this is not liberty to go out and live like the rest of the world, but there is an understanding that God knows all, and he knows that we're going to battle. And if we say that we don't, then we lie. So if you meet someone, hypothetically speaking, since I gave my life to Christ, I've never sinned. This text would say that they're a liar. And you don't have to point your finger and say, liar, liar, hobbitink, hobbitink. Sorry, I'm movie quotes are killing me today. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that, but you have to know that as a vessel of truth, they're probably not it. And if you wake up defeated because you're like, I know that I love Jesus. I know that I follow Jesus. Why am I plagued by this sin? And not, again, not an excuse, not a liberty, but God knew you were going to. God knew you were going to. Because this world that we're, we're living in, that we've been left in for a purpose, for a mission, it's still plagued by sin. And we live in it. Not to be of it, but we're in it. And so there will be days, probably today and probably tomorrow, that sin will be just waiting for you. For me, like anecdotally, the time when I feel like I struggle most with sin is after God's revealed something incredible. Like I guarantee I could interview like pastors across the board and say, when is it that you struggle with temptation the most? After an amazing Sunday of worship. Or you know, even like the summer camp analogy. Remember summer camps? Did y'all ever go to, to Christian summer camps? Remember those mountaintops? Mountaintops aren't bad. But then you come back home, you get off the bus, and man, somebody's waiting to eat your lunch as soon as you get home. Sin's real. 
But God knew. He said, so if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But, but here's God. Oh, because he knew. Here's verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because God knew. Because God knew. Now again, context is everything. This book is being written to believers. Okay? Believers whose sins have been paid for. Because Jesus never does partial payments for us. Okay? His death was not a down payment. It wasn't a partial payment. It was a full payment. Full recompense. Okay? Full ransom was paid by grace through faith on the cross. His blood wasn't just enough to satisfy a time. It wasn't just enough to satisfy a circumstance. No, all of my past sins, my present sins, my future sins, by grace through faith, my confession of Jesus as Lord, according to Romans 10, they're all paid for. They're all taken care of. I no longer have a debt when it comes to God because Jesus, what he's done, not what I did, what Jesus has done, paid for all of them. And so you say, well, why does this sit here then? So what do I need to do? Well, here's the reality. Sin is real. God's grace is real. Sin interferes. It's not God's desire. Like, it's not God's desire that he redeems us from this world, places us in his kingdom, and then we still let sin have the reins. Like, that's not his desire. But he knows it's going gonna, it's gonna to rear its head. It's going to catch us. So 1 John 1, 9, so if, here's the if, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The communion, the quantania, the fellowship that is broken as a result of sin, even sin in the life of a believer, if we confess, which literally this confess idea means to agree with God, like that's what confession is. Like confession is, uh, I am going to say, God, what you know to be true. I will confess this. This is against your will, against your desire, against your plan, not what you want for me. I confess that I agree with you by telling you my sin, and I trust you to restore, to fix what was hindered, to fix what was broken, to fix my blindness, to fix the things that sin comes in and mucks up. If we just confess, agree with God. Number one, we're, we're all going to be there. But God says, just, just agree with me. Just agree with me on, on this is sin. It's not what I want for you. So confess it to me. Turn from it. Leave it behind and trust me to restore. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The beauty of that light and dark thing is it's the same thing as righteousness and sin. Like, they're mutually exclusive. They can't exist in the same plane. And so when it comes in, when it takes root, we confess. We agree with God. God, this is not what you want. Here's what I've done. Will you fix me? And this is not about salvific purpose because we've already been redeemed. But this is about the fellowship that's broken and hindered by sin because that's what it does. And again, I could interview you, and I, I, don't, I don't want to use your experience as truth, but it does align with what we see in Scripture. Like, you know, like in those days in which you knew that you were a follower of Jesus, you believed in Him uh, to be your righteous price that you couldn't pay, but you can look back at your life and you can remember when patterns of sin were more prevalent than He was you felt cut off. You felt alone. You were embarrassed to pray. 
You were embarrassed to seek his will. You were embarrassed to open his word. Let me, let me change that. I was embarrassed to pray. I was embarrassed to seek his will through his word. I was embarrassed to confess my sin because I'd followed after it more than I'd followed after him, even though I knew that he's who owned me, not sin. Like we can remember, I can remember those times in which sin was louder than grace, but it was not more true. It was not more valid. Grace will always be the most true, the most valid, regardless of my circumstance, sometimes in spite of it. So if we say we have no sin, we lie. But if we have sin, confess, agree with God on what it is, and then allow Him to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, those things that come in that cannot exist with righteousness. And then verse 10 again, if we say we have not sinned, not only are we lying, but we make him a liar and his word's not in us. Now, John here in this particular verse, he's probably not referencing anything that we have written from the mouth of Jesus, but it was an accepted truth most likely at this point uh, in the church's life and in the history that Jesus knew that we were going to sin. Jesus knew we were going to to mess up. As a matter of fact, that's the reason we read throughout the epistles like confession and repentance. They come up over and over and over. And they're they're not written to just people that need to confess for salvation. They're written to the church to confess for restoration, to see sin, confess sin, call it exactly what it is, to agree with God as to what it is, and to seek His healing, His restoration, His forgiveness. Not for my salvation, but for that fellowship that John is yearning that the readers have. That me as a pastor, I'm yearning that you have. So what do we do with it? What do we do with it? I think in light of this text, I think the first is we we just ask a question. Let's ask the clean, simple one first. Who directs my life? Like who, and I'll even say this, who or what directs my life? I'm not making God a what, but there's a very good chance that a what could be directing our life instead of a who. So who or what directs my life? I think that's the first question. Again, light or dark, can't have both. There's one without the other. There's one without the other. Like they can't exist at the same time. And if we say that we know God, but we're walking in the darkness, we don't know him. We're liars. But if we're walking in the light, like as he is in the light, because it's his, that's what he is, uh, then we, we have union with him, and we have union with one another, and he's forgiven us of our sins. So the question becomes, for believer and even non-believer alike, for believer, like who, who directs your life? Because again, this is meant to shore up our belief. This is meant to, to strengthen our belief. This is meant for us to be able to answer the question, like, who do I follow? Who do I belong to? Well, I think before we can even answer that, we have to ask, who do I follow? Like, who is it that's directing my life? Very similar to the question that we asked in community group last week. If you were in community group, we just, we just asked this question, like, when we, when we need answers, where do we go? Like, on things like, you know, immaterial things, where do we go? We most likely Google that, but when we need questions of, like, eternal significance, or when we need answers for questions of eternal significance, where, where do we go? I think that's one indicator, who directs our life. I think another great indicator, and you might not want to do this... Maybe ask somebody that knows you well, someone that follows Jesus. Ask them. Say, hey, who, who does it look like directs my life? Might not like the answer on that one. 
And again, this is not to make us doubt our salvation. That's, that's not my goal. And I don't think it was John's goal. Again, I think it's to shore up our belief and to shore up our understanding, but also to let us know that we can't simultaneously follow Jesus and live in the darkness. Like, those two things can't happen. Maybe ask somebody that knows you, that really, really knows you. Not just somebody that sees you, but somebody that knows you. Somebody that follows Jesus that knows you and say, hey, just as a, you know, a partial third party, semi, just who, do you, who does it look like directs my life? And hear their answer. And it may mean, A, um, that you, you say thank you for your honesty, but it may mean, B, that you actually start to ask God, God, would you direct my life? I say that I know you. I say that I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want to confess you as Lord. Like, I believe in what you've done, what you've said, who you are. I believe that you are God with skin on that walked among us so that you could pay for the price that I couldn't, I couldn't possibly pay. Like, I believe that. But I want my life to look like it too. So maybe it's just maybe that's just a convicting point where you're just like, God, I, I don't even know what that looks like. But I would like for you to direct my life instead of something else or someone else. Maybe it's there. Maybe another indicator, not not John and Ian of, of any of his writings, but in Matthew 11, like this one just kind of dawned on me. Like he, uh, Jesus is talking to a very Jewish group of people. In 11:28, he was like, uh, "Come to me, all of you who are heavy laden. I'll give you rest." My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Here's another good indicator. For those people and for us too, are you worn out trying to live a good life? Are you exhausted trying to live like a good life, trying to, to do the best that you can? Because Jesus said, the way that you follow me is not going to wear you out. He said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. There's a yoke. But he said, by comparison to trying to earn it, by comparison to trying to, to live it out on your own, my yoke is easy, and my burden that you bear is light. For the people that were sitting in the hearing shot of that particular thing, they were, they were weighed down by the bags and bags and pounds of pounds of, of religious obligation that they thought they had to live out in order to be acceptable and right with God. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you can't. I can. It's about what I'm doing and what I'm going to do, not about what you can do. Maybe for you, you're not hampered by religious obligation, but maybe you're hampered by what the world says is good and what the world says is worthy. Maybe you're trying to live all those things out, and you're just exhausted. You're worn out because you're letting the wrong thing direct your life. Jesus said, come to me. If you're just weighed down, I'll give you rest. If we're finding something other than rest in Jesus, we're probably not following Jesus. You're like, man, that's a pretty, that's a harsh statement. Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. He is our rest. Because we don't have to earn it. We don't have to fight for it. We don't have to make it happen because He already did. There's no greater rest than resting in the efficacy and the work of Jesus. No matter what the world says, no matter who's trying to lead us away, no matter what our, our, our brain is telling us that we must do to be accepted, Jesus said, I'm perfectly accepted. I'm perfectly righteous. Trust in my perfection. Trust in my righteousness. And you will find rest. I'll give you responsibility. But by comparison, it'll be easy and it will be light. If you're exhausted by your efforts... It's probably not light that you're living in. If I'm exhausted by my efforts, 
it's probably not light that I'm living in. It's probably not God that I'm letting order my days. Something else. So that's the first easy question. Who or what is directing our life? I think the second thing that we need to do, and this is not not fun or culturally acceptable because, you know, it's, it's just not up to us to say that there are things that are right or wrong, but there are things that are right or wrong, just like light and dark. And the wrong in our life is called sin. In this passage, it shows grace, it shows understanding, it shows God that has full knowledge of whom he's redeeming. For those of us who are yoked to Jesus, we need to be diligent to deal with our sin. We need to be diligent to deal with our sin. Because again, Jesus didn't come to redeem us to sit on our cans in a pew. He didn't come to redeem us and let us stew in our own mess. He didn't come to redeem us so that the world could still direct our paths. No, he came to redeem us, to change us, to make us new. And our lives, to a degree, to a large degree, should look new, should smell new, should be new. And one of those newness factors is that sin no longer rules over me. Sin no longer directs my path. Sin is no longer my master. And so if Jesus is our Lord, sin can't be our Lord. So when sin comes in, which it will, not an excuse and not liberty, but when it does, we need to deal with it. And we need to deal with it quickly. And we need to let God work. And so in this text, like, I, I love the simplicity of John. I love, like I do, like I love feeling like I'm sitting across from a grandfather who's lived it, who's been there, and who is, man, he's seen it all. I mean, he's seen his life tried to be taking, taken away from him in the form of being fried, deep fried, or boiled, either way, not fun. He's seen his life tried to be removed from him by putting it on a, a rocky island in which he was expected to die as an old man, but he didn't. And that old man sitting across from the people that he loves, that he desires to shepherd, the elder that God has placed them over, and he says, if we just confess our sin, if we just agree with God on what this is and what it's not, he will cleanse us, forgive us, and fix what has been interfering with the fellowship. If we just. Believers, we... We can't tolerate sin. We can't just let it sit. We can't just look at it as like it's not a big deal. It's a big enough deal that Jesus left where he was. He hung on a cross and he died. That's how big sin is. That's the lengths he went to, to make sure that sin was no longer our Lord. So that means that, number one, we, we need to admit sin's going to come in. Sin's going to mess with me. Sin is going to affect me. We need to strive to, to sin less and less. We will never be sinless until glorification, but until said time, we do. We need to strive to sin less and less. And that means that when it comes in, we allow God's Holy Spirit to convict us of that sin. We allow God's Holy Spirit to push us towards confession of that sin. And we allow God's Spirit to work and redeem and make us right. Not make us right eternally, but in that moment where fellowship has been injured, broken, messed up. And God doesn't say, you need to say this, you need to say that, you need to, you need to do any of those things. And I'm, I'm not jumping on anybody that grew up in a, in, a, in a Catholic background, but the beauty of Scripture just says, if we confess, agree with God on what this is, He will forgive and cleanse. Jesus is not giving a checklist. He's giving a solution. Not a checklist, but a solution. We need to see it. We need to confess it. 
We need to seek God's restoration. And maybe even this. I had a conversation with a guy this week. Maybe, maybe we actually need to share it with someone else. Because sometimes, and you can, again, you could attest to this, sometimes the sin that you're battling is bigger than what you can handle on your own. Number one, we have the Spirit. That's great. But also Scripture gives prescription to confess one to another. And the one another's we've talked about, like the one another's is this, like the body of believers, those who are also yoked to Jesus, just like we are, by grace through faith, even when we are dead in our trespasses, like confessing one to another, brings about healing. Why does it bring about healing? Because you have someone else interceding on your behalf. You have someone else asking about how your sin is going. You have someone else holding you to task because they're going to be serious about it like you're serious about it and understanding that Jesus paid a high price and that high price included us no longer being lorded over by our sin. If we're serious about Jesus, we're serious about avoiding sin. And, and that's just the simple truth. Like, that's, that's simple, God-driven truth right there. If we're serious about Jesus, we're serious about avoiding sin. But we also admit, like, it, it's going to happen. Again, not liberty, not license, we're not rescuing, but it's going to be there. So when it comes in, we deal with it. We deal with it. If we need to invite in help, we invite in help. Is it embarrassing? Probably. Is it awkward? Probably. Is it necessary? Probably. In the past three months, I've had to sit across people, not had to, pardon me. I'm sorry, those are the wrong words. I've gotten to sit across people who voluntarily confess their sin to me. Not so that God can forgive them, not so that I can forgive them, but because because they don't know what to do with it. They don't know where victory comes from in that particular moment. They know that victory rests in Jesus, but in the moment when sin is the biggest liar that they're listening to, when sin is the thing that's in their camp so deep and they can't get away, they confess. We need to be people to where that's not a last resort. We need to be people that's so serious about it that that maybe that's the first thing on our mind. When we transgress the holy word and law of God, the way that he desires for us to live, maybe maybe it's one of our first thoughts that we're like, oh, I need to tell somebody about this so that they can know, so that they can pray, so that they can help. Maybe that should be a first stop instead of a last. Again, it goes back to the understanding that God is real. He's completely knowable. Sin wants to eat our breakfast and our lunch and our dinner. Because someone wants to destroy what we have. And he will come at us when we're at our weakest. He will come at us in the perfect way that he knows that he can get to us. He will come at us with the things that we have loved for so long. And so we need to be aggressive in dealing with it. Not to the point that it makes us legalists. Not to the points that we create a standard that's unlivable. But to the point that we say, God, I agree with you on the things that you want, the things that you don't want. Let me pursue that. Let me pursue that. Maybe this week, maybe this week, there's a couple things, same things that we just said, that first question, like just ask, like who directs my life? Like, really? And this is one of those things, like, we have to be incredibly honest with ourselves. This is not to beat ourselves up. This is not to make us feel horrible. Because, again, God is far more realer. That's not even a real word. But he's realer than sin. He's realer than struggle. He's realer than temptation. He's incredibly, entirely knowable and real. And so maybe we just need to ask the question, who's directing my life? Who's directing my life? And if it's, if it's someone other than the light of God then maybe we do exactly what this text says. We confess that. 
we tell God, God, you know what? I agree with you. I agree with you. You want to be the Lord of my life, and I've let something else be the Lord of my life. I'm confessing it to you now. Would you, would you truly show me what it means to allow you to lead me, to allow me to follow you, to set the pattern and the course of my world after your heart, your desire, and your will for me? Maybe we confess and proclaim that. Maybe for you this week, you just, you just need to take an honest assessment. I need to take an honest assessment of, of what sins are just hanging out in my life and why are they there and what do I need to do to fully, really, truly agree with God and say, I don't want these here. I don't want these here. And maybe that's you confessing it to someone else. Maybe that's you confessing it to someone else and giving them access and authority to ask you whatever questions they want, whenever they want, as often as they want in an effort to help you abandon sin and remain in Christ. Sin is serious, but God's worth it. I know that's, that's like a pastoral cliche thing to say, but it's also, man, it's also pastorally true. Like sin is serious, but God's worth it. Let me pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for, um, we thank you for the fact that Jesus was willing to pay for our insufficiency, our inadequacy, our inability to, to really be good. God, I thank you that he was all the things that we could not be, and as a result of that, his life and his words and his death and his resurrection are trustworthy for our salvation and our place with you. Thank you for Jesus. God is as a people that, that do want to declare that Jesus is our Lord. Father, I pray that, that our lives would look like our declaration. Father, I pray that the indicators would be there, that we would be people of light, not people of darkness, that we would be people that pursue righteousness and not sin. And Father, that we would be people that when sin creeps in, uh, we don't let it sit there, we deal with it. And we would go to whatever links we, we need, uh, what are the links necessary to abandon sin and to fully agree with you, to confess to you uh, what it is. And Father, we expectantly trust your restoration and your healing and your cleansing. And we thank you for your promise. Father, for the city that, that we live in, that we dwell in, that we call home, that so desperately needs to hear of your grace and your mercy that is available by grace through faith. Father, I pray that we would be a people who can share of it frequently, share of it diligently, and, Father, share of it with love and expectation that you will do something with it, that you'll call men and women to yourself. God, thank you for your simple truths today. Thank you for expecting us to be more. And thank you for the rest of Jesus. We love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, we have a few announcements this morning, and then...